Well, as you know, if you read the news at all, just a few weeks ago, uh, the popular pastor and Christian author Joshua Harris announced that he was renouncing his faith in Christ and was leaving his wife, which was weird for me because I have his books on my shelf in my office. He stated, quote, by all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And in detail, he renounced and apologized for many things that he had preached from the Bible. And in fact, he viewed this as a happy moment. He said, quote, to my Christian friends, I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. And of course, the question is now, well, hopeful in what or in whom? You just rejected the only foundation of hope, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the only reliable source of hope, the inerrant scriptures. And so that's a reasonable question for us. Turn with me to John chapter 15, and we're going to hear from the only foundation of hope in the only reliable source of hope. We've been examining the biblical truth of costly Christianity in John 15 and into John 16. And this is rooted in a concern that we have that many have followed after an easy gospel that's really no gospel at all, an easy believism, a, a free grace that requires nothing. The basic theme in this series is to follow Christ costs. There is a price. Luke 14, verse 33, Jesus said, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Last time we looked at the cost of fatherly discipline in the first three verses of John 15, that the true believer is the one who is, who is pruned by the Father. He's cut back and trimmed, discipled for the sake of godliness and for the sake of properly adorning the vine who is Christ. And this morning we'd like to look at the cost of committed perseverance. The cost of committed perseverance. And like last time, our text this morning in verses 4, 5, and 6 speaks of the true believer bearing fruit. And we did a quick New Testament survey of what that spiritual fruit consists of. We said that it consists of the fruit of repentance, that is turning your back on your sin, changing your mind about your sin. The fruit of the Spirit, as listed in Galatians 5, we saw the fruit of satisfaction in that you're fully satisfied in Christ rather than in any other pursuit. We saw the fruit of righteousness, which the Apostle Paul listed in Philippians 1 as love, knowledge, discernment, wisdom, purity, and blamelessness. We saw that true salvation evidences the fruit of evangelism, of concern for and prayer for and labor for the lost for the sake of the gospel. And we saw that this spiritual fruit consists of the fruit of church faithfulness, faithfulness to the local church. As Paul prayed for the church at Colossae that they would bear fruit in, quote, every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God in Colossians 1. And so in our text today, the Lord Jesus is going to address the issue of perseverance, of holding to faith in Christ until the day of your death and holding at all costs. And it's going to be absolutely clear that perseverance is a requirement of those who would profess to follow after Christ, that we don't just float through a life of rebellion, float through a life of disobedience, having made a one-time profession of faith and relying solely on that one historical instance for all of our assurance or security and salvation. So let's let the text speak to us and then we'll take it apart here. John 15, 
verse 4, Jesus continues, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Let's just highlight two main truths found in this text. And these are truths that are so woven together, so knitted together in this text that they're almost inseparable. But here's the first truth. You must persevere to the end. You must persevere to the end. This truth is embedded in the fabric of these three verses. It it can't be removed. It can't be redefined. It can't be reorganized. It can't be given an easy believism spin. It's here and it's here to stay. Listen to the emphases on this truth that you must persevere to the end. I'm just going to read those three verses again, but listen to the emphasis. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Then the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. You see how it's interwoven. You cannot get away from it. Verse four, he says, abide in me. This is an imperative verb. It's a command. It isn't describing a way of thinking. It isn't describing an attitude. It's something that you do. And you won't bear spiritual fruit unless you abide in the vine who is Christ. And in verse 5, it's not the branch that abides in the vine. It's not that the branch that abides in the vine has the potential to bear fruit. He will bear fruit. In fact, if it was potential, a different Greek verb type would be used, which expresses a wish or a hope or a prayer. But that's not the case here. This is a different verb type called an indicative. It indicates that something is going to happen. It's true. You recall that abide simply means to remain. It means to stay. It means that you are immovable. You are to remain with Christ. Jesus never teaches what the free grace, easy believism proponents say, that you can profess faith in Christ and then just coast to the finish line of your life without having ever shown any of the fruits of righteousness in your life. Jesus never taught that. And you, therefore, must persevere to the end. And I'd like to give you six, well, I'll call them becauses to this truth. Now, I'm going to be mentioning quite a number of scriptures, so if you're a note taker, it might be easier for, for you just to note the references. But you must persevere to the end because, first of all, self-deception is possible for the unsaved. Self-deception is possible for the unsaved. How can the unsaved be deceived in false faith? Well, let me, let me give you a short list here. Claims of miraculous deeds. They claim the, mirac- the miraculous. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, the lost will say to Christ at the judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not do these mighty miracles in your name? How else can the unsaved be deceived? They're deceived by an immediate enthusiasm. 
Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the parable of the soils into which is planted the seed of the gospel. And in the rocky soil, the, the seed springs up quickly, but eventually is scorched by the sun because it had no root. As a pastor, I've seen this. I've baptized people who then disappear. They're gone. Immediate enthusiasm. There's a third reason the unsaved can be deceived. They like the Bible. They like the Bible. Hebrews 6 verse 5 says that the false believer believed, quote, in the goodness of the word of God. That they like the Bible. It's comforting to them at some level. How else can the unsaved be deceived? They have understood the truths of the gospel. They've understood the truths of the gospel. Hebrews 6 verse 4 says they were enlightened. They learned the gospel, but they haven't responded to the gospel. They haven't responded to the truth. How else can they be deceived? They've tasted Christianity. They've tasted the same Hebrews 6 passage two times says that the self-deceived has tasted of the faith. Tasting is different than eating. You can taste something and then reject it and spit it out. How else can they be deceived? They go to church. They go to church. That's perhaps the most diabolical deception of all. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And listen, you you don't say a, a person who now has rejected the faith can't blame anybody well i had a bad experience in the church therefore i now reject christ or i had a bad experience with a christian therefore i reject christ or i don't agree with what was taught therefore i reject christ they have only themselves to blame according to scripture they went out and so the self-deceived they pursued the miraculous they're enthusiastic they like the bible they've understood the truths of the gospel they've tasted christianity they go to church and so Self-deception is real. It happens. There's a second because. You must persevere to the end because false faith is a reality. False faith is a reality. Similar to the first one, but I want to make a little distinction here. A false faith includes some measure of intellectual assent, but no actual regeneration. There's no actual heart change generated by the Holy Spirit. There's no conversion Let me just rifle through the many times the New Testament affirms that false faith is a reality. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 10, many will fall away. Two verses later in verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, meaning, by the way, a de-emphasis on obedience to God, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 19, That we are to hold faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 20-22, and I'm paraphrasing, that if you've escaped what he calls the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Christ, and then you go back, it would have been better for you to have never pretended to believe in the first place. Galatians 2, 4 speaks of false brothers secretly brought in. Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six that he's been endangered by many things for the sake of the gospel, one of them being false brothers. He said earlier in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen that Satan's servants, quote, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now, what is this false faith? It cannot be the undoing of regeneration. It cannot be the loss of genuine salvation. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says that the believer in Christ is a new creation. The old has what? Gone. And the new has come. Therefore, the self-deceived person with false faith was never born again in the first place. And they can't blame anybody but themselves. They heard the truth and rejected it. Here's a third because. You must persevere to the end because you are called to endure and conquer. You're called to endure and conquer. Jesus said in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Seven times to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, the one who conquers. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will be given the hidden manna, that is the bread of life. The one who conquers will be given authority over nations. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will confess his name before my father. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And listen, in the context of these admonitions to seven churches, conquering means what? Obeying Christ. That's what it means to conquer. Listen, if salvation were automatic, if you pray the prayer when you were six, if you checked a card, if you walked the aisle, if you did all the things that we're told make you a Christian, that if you at any time for one moment intellectually believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and that makes you saved forever, then the message to endure and to conquer wouldn't be so deeply emphasized in the New Testament. It wouldn't be there. Let me give you a fourth because. You must persevere to the end because you are called to prove that you fear God. You are called to prove that you fear God. Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Notice he didn't say work for your salvation. That's impossible. He said work out your own salvation. How? With the fear of God in mind. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell? That is God. We're to fear him. Now, in the Bible, the idea of fearing God has a a spectrum of meaning. It can mean all the way from revere God all the way to be terrified of God and everything in between. This is more in the realm of be terrified of God. And you might say, Pastor, you want me to be afraid of God? No, the Bible commands you to be afraid of God because that's what those who are subject to him do. And the fact that false faith is possible, that self-deception is possible, that the unfaithful branches should be carried to the fire and burned in the eternal fire, yes, that ought to provoke fear. It is the sole emphasis on God's love without any reference to his fearsomeness and his judgment that deceives the masses into believing that they're saved when they're not. Let me give you a fifth because. You must persevere to the end because you are commanded to hold to gospel hope. You are commanded to hold to gospel hope. 
Paul warned in Colossians 1, 22 and 23 that Christ, quote, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Listen to this, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We don't shift. Jesus himself said in John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Did you notice that he gave a condition? And the condition is, here's who he was speaking to. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. He said, if you abide in my word, then it's real. He gave a condition to those who had intellectually believed that time would tell. Well, I'm a Christian. Time will tell. Well, I'm a believer. Time will tell. And what would be the telling point? They hold to the gospel of Christ. They hold to the word of Christ. The writer of Hebrews gave the same condition. Hebrews 3.14 For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It is commanded of you to hold to your confidence in the gospel. Let me give you one more because you must persevere to the end because the threat of hell is real. The threat of hell is real. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. We made the case last week that whenever the New Testament speaks of the fires of judgment, those are real. Those are not symbolic. Revelation 21.8 As for the cowardly, the faithless, The detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus calls hell in Matthew 25 eternal punishment. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1 9 that those who do not obey the gospel, quote, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is not symbolic. In Matthew thirteen fifty, Jesus calls hell the fiery furnace and a place that will be will have weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark nine forty three, Jesus calls hell the unquenchable fire, and Jude, the half brother of Jesus, calls hell a punishment of eternal fire. Listen, in verse six, Jesus uses the metaphor of branches being thrown in the fire. The metaphor stops with the branches and the reality starts with the fire. You must persevere to the end because self-deception is possible for the unsaved, because false faith is a reality, because you're called to endure and conquer, because you're called to prove that you fear God, because you're commanded to hold to gospel hope, and because the threat of hell is real. John 15, 4, abide in me. One scholar correctly observes, it is indefensible to take the and I in you as an absolute promise, regardless of the perseverance or fickleness of the ostensible believer. So how do you persevere? How do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? The Apostle Paul summed it up in Acts 24, 16. He said, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. This means living before God, observing his commands, being spiritually watchful. It means being in prayer. It means being faithful in the Lord's table. It means 
being a faithful hearer and doer of the word. It means being faithful in Christ's church. It means seeking and practicing scriptural commands in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships. It means seeking forgiveness when needed and extending forgiveness when asked for. In other words, the, the persevering saint cherishes and loves the Christian life. We cherish the Christian life. The first truth embedded and woven into John 15, 4 through 6, you must persevere to the end. But there's a second truth embedded and woven in. You shall persevere to the end. You shall persevere to the end. Listen to the emphasis on this truth that you shall persevere to the end. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. You shall persevere to the end. The Westminster Confession of Faith states, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. To put it more simply, the truly saved cannot lose their salvation and will persevere in faith to the end of their lives. Let's do some becauses again. You shall persevere. You shall persevere because salvation is from God. Salvation is from God. The prophet Jonah, the disobedient prophet, from the depths of having been swallowed by a great fish, he ends his humble prayer by saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a one-sentence summary of the doctrine of salvation in the entire Bible. That's what salvation is. It belongs to the Lord. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Take all the modifiers out of that really long sentence. What does it say? God made us alive. That's what it says. Here's another because. You shall persevere because God cannot violate his own character. God cannot violate his own character. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That when we stumble, that when we don't conduct ourselves in the manner befitting the gospel, he remains faithful. Why? Because to not be faithful would be to deny his own covenant-keeping, promise-keeping character. There's another because. You shall persevere because justification is once for all. Justification is once for all. Romans 5, 8, and 9. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified. Past tense. By his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The great exchange of your unrighteousness being credited to Christ in his death and Christ's righteousness being credited to your account, it's taken place. It's finished. It's done. You've been judicially in the heavenly Supreme Court declared righteous and holy before God. This is your position before him at this very moment. 
Justification is not something you continue to work toward. It's your possession. It's yours to keep. You have a key to heaven that nobody can take away. Here's another one. You shall persevere because reconciliation is once for all. Reconciliation is once for all. Your justification didn't just keep you from the wrath of God. I mean, that's good, but it went beyond that. It also opened the door now to reconciliation, to enter into a love relationship with God, into an intimate, eternal relationship with the creator of all things. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are Present tense, it's current, reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And this right relationship causes rejoicing, it causes worship, it causes praise, it causes adoration. The very next verse, Romans 5.11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received what? Reconciliation. We're in, a, we're in an intimate love relationship with the God of the universe. We're reconciled to him. Or as Jesus puts it, we're friends. You shall persevere because, here's another one, your election is eternal. Your election is eternal. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now look, what is this? This is kindergarten language. God is coming down to our level to help us grasp something. He says before the foundation of the world, before creation. We can sort of grasp that. We can say, well, we can look back to creation, so let's just go a little bit before that and we can understand that. But what's he really saying? This is an understandable way of saying that you were always chosen. You were always elect. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that the grace of God was given to you, quote, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And we should make a note here. Regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit, divinely appointed, comes before, in logical order, comes before human faith. Jesus said in John 10, 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Did you catch that? It's not you are not my sheep because you don't believe. It's you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Meaning God the Father elects and calls to salvation first. The great Puritan Thomas Watson, he wrote this. It is not your holding God, but his holding us that preserves us. When a boat is tied to a rock, it is secure. So when we are fast tied to the rock of ages, we are impregnable. Here's another because. You shall persevere because you are in union with Christ. You are in union with Christ. These three verses here in John 15 so beautifully explain our union with Christ. We are in Him and He is in us. Our destiny is bound up with His. We've died with Him. We've been raised with Him. We'll be glorified with Him. This is so important because if one true Christian could be broken away from their union with Christ, then two true Christians could be broken away from their union with Christ. And if two true Christians could be broken away from their union with Christ, five could, and then ten could, and a hundred could, and a thousand could, and theoretically 
every single Christian could be broken away from union. And now the Lord Jesus would be a king without a people, a savior without the saved, and a head without the body who is the church. God said of Israel's future restoration in Hosea 2, He said, I will betroth you to me forever. That's how he is in union with us. It is forever. It is unbreakable. Here's another because. You shall persevere because Christ is praying for you. Christ is praying for you. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does this mean? It always lives to make intercession for you. He's praying for you all the time. By the way, Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit's praying for you. You've got God the Son and God the Spirit appealing to God the Father on your behalf. That's a prayer team. Jesus prayed in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, you shall persevere because Christ is praying for you. Here's another because. You sh- I have a few more. You shall persevere because the Holy Spirit is keeping you. The Holy Spirit is keeping you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. Did you notice who is the guarantee of our inheritance? It is the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you could walk away from God, you would. Because walking with God is hard. It costs. It makes demands to walk with God. But the Holy Spirit has sealed you. By the way, he's not just the one doing the sealing. He is the seal. He is the guarantee. How? You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and he is never leaving you and i guarantee the holy spirit is not going to hell therefore you aren't either you shall persevere because of your future perfection in the past your future perfection in the past and now we begin to blow some brain cells here trying to grasp this great truth hebrews 10 14 for by a single offering he that is christ has perfected past tense For all time, those who are being sanctified. Did you catch that? You are being sanctified, growing in Christ's likeness, and you have been perfected for all time. I don't understand that. I just trust it. You shall persevere. Here's another because. You shall persevere because Christ has personally guaranteed your preservation. He's personally guaranteed it. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. It is the Father's will that Jesus not lose one of you. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus has given a personal guarantee. Here's another because. You shall persevere because no one can pry you from God's hand. No one can pry you from God's hand. John 10, 28 and 29. 
Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you can lose your salvation just as soon as somebody stronger than God comes along. God the Son is holding you and as if that's not guarantee enough, God the Father is holding you. Here's another because. You shall persevere because salvation is an irrevocable gift. It's an irrevocable gift. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the gift. What do we say about this gift? Romans 11.29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It, it's a word that literally means not regrettable. God will never regret saving you. God will never regret saving you. Here's another because. You shall persevere because nothing exists that can take your salvation. Nothing exists that can take your salvation. The Apostle Paul gives his famous list of all the things that might try to take your salvation in Romans 8. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things in the present, things in the future, powers, heights, uh, depths, nor anything else in all creation. By the way, not even your sins can take away your salvation. You didn't gain salvation by your good works and you won't lose it by your bad works. Here's another one. You shall persevere because you are forever guiltless. You are forever guiltless. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's timeless. It's timeless. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you understand that someday when you stand before God and if He were allowed to, if Satan were able to come and say, I have accusations to bring against this person, God would say, I will not hear them because He is guiltless before me. Here's another one. You shall persevere because assurance is yours in Christ. Assurance is yours in Christ. I want to slow down just a minute on this one. Hebrews 10, 19 and following says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How is it that you have assurance? What's your assurance of salvation based upon? Is it based upon an historical remembrance of one profession? No. You have assurance several ways. First of all, by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. By the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 4, 6, the Apostle Paul says, And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God Himself witnesses to your heart. Another way you have assurance is by obedience to the Scriptures. By obedience. 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. If we keep his commandments, you have assurance by your natural love for God's people. 
your natural love for God's people. First John three fourteen. we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. You love the church. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't like the church. That, that doesn't exist. And here's an unusual one. By the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, by obedience to the Scriptures, by our natural love for God's people, and, and hear me out on this, you have assurance by your lack of peace when you rebel. By your lack of peace when you rebel. Yes, you're going to sin. You're going to stray. You're going to struggle, even in rebellion at times. But you know what? It'll cost you your peace. One theologian rightly observed, quote, God will not permit true believers to persist in their immaturity or their sin and at the same time to continue to enjoy an unabated peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, your conscience is going to torture you. Listen to King David on three different occasions when peace had left him because of his own sin. Psalm 32, 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalm 38, 2, For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. You feel that weight of oppression. Psalm 51, verse 2, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There's a deep yearning to, to re recover that peace the very fact that the conscience and the heart of the believer is tortured and tormented by his own sin is evidence that he hates his sin what do we call that in new testament terms we call that that he's repented he's changed his mind about the sin that he used to love the great puritan pastor john flavel 17th century pastor he wrote concerning the perseverance of the saints It is a steady and constant continuance of Christians in the ways of duty and obedience amidst all temptations and discouragements to the contrary. Now, obviously we presented two truths that seem difficult to reconcile. How do we reconcile that you must persevere to the end and you shall persevere to the end. How do we reconcile those two? If you emphasize only the first, that you must, emphasize, you must persevere to the end, that leads to a life of dread and terror. And if you emphasize only the second, that you shall persevere to the end, that leads to a life of flagrantly disregarding God or perhaps even having false assurance of salvation. And so it might make you ask the question, If the true Christian is going to persevere to the end, why does Scripture have all these admonitions to endure, to conquer, to remain faithful? Commands which carry the threat of eternal judgment in hell if they're ignored. Aren't those commands unnecessary if the true believer can't be lost? And that's a reasonable question. Well, the Bible answers this question with a real-life scenario, a real-life setting. When the Apostle Paul was being transported to Rome to face trial with Caesar himself, he was in the custody of a Roman centurion. There were other soldiers as well. They set sail for Rome, and eventually they changed ships at the port of Myra along the way. Acts 27 tells us this. The season was really late for sailing across the Mediterranean, but the ship's captain took a poll of all of the sailors, and they said, let's go for it. They decided they could make it to Crete and spend the winter there until sailing weather weather was better. But they were hit by a massive storm. 
such that they started throwing cargo overboard, and on top of that, they ran out of food. Now, now you're in trouble. But they had the Apostle Paul with them. This was their ace in the hole. So he stood before everyone on the ship, and he said, from Acts 27, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And then a little bad news, but we must run aground on some island. In verse 34, Paul assured them, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. In other words, difficult challenges are ahead, but you will not perish. You will be saved. It looked like the ship was going to run aground, a disaster. So many of the sailors started pretending to get the anchors ready. But what they were really doing was that they were about to jump ship. They were lowering the one lifeboat into the sea. And listen to this. Acts 27, 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the sailors obeyed. They cut away the lifeboat and let it be swept out to sea. In the end of the story, verse 44, all were brought safely to land. Now, did you notice something? Paul told the men that the lives of all of them would be saved by a decree of God. And he also told them that if any of them jumped ship, they would die and they would be lost. In the same way, God has ordained the end of salvation, that you shall persevere to the end. You shall be taken into his presence. You shall be free of any condemnation or judgment. You shall enter into eternal life with him. And God has ordained the means to that end that you must persevere. You must persevere and you shall persevere because salvation is from God and God cannot violate his own character. Justification is once for all. Reconciliation is once for all. Your election is eternal. You're in union with Christ. Christ is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is keeping you. Your future perfection in the past guarantees your preservation. Christ has personally guaranteed your preservation. No one can pry you from God's hand. Salvation is an irrevocable gift. Nothing exists that can take your salvation. You will be forever guiltless and assurance can be yours in Christ. Those are just the ones I had time for. I didn't have time for these you shall persevere because you're built on the rock and not the sand the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church you shall persevere because nothing can separate the believer from the love of christ it's impossible for the elect to be finally deceived matthew 24 you have passed from death to life john 5 you've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light first peter 2 we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places ephesians 1 those whom whom god predestined he called then he justified and he glorified that golden unbreakable chain of salvation from romans 8 because you're guarded by god's power for a salvation ready to be revealed first peter 1 5 and you shall persevere because your name is written in the lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world is that a guarantee enough for you And you can be like Job. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. 
And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is assurance because of perseverance. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come now to the high point of Christian worship, to the most unique and special time that we really enjoy on this earth, and that is the Lord's table. Lord, we thank you, first of all, for the Word of God, which is so richly and clearly imparted to us that we must persevere and that we shall persevere. And Lord God, we come now to remember the reason that we shall persevere, and that is the blood of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ shed his blood on our behalf, the fact that he lived a perfect life that we could not live and exchanged it for ours, such that you view us as you view Christ. We thank you and we love you. Christ's name, amen.